I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to The Number Station. For today's episode, I'm going to talk about ancient prophecy and modern scientific forecasting. It's um, an interesting point of connection that I pointed out right in the first episode when I started doing this new theme of uh, intelligence and mysticism that one thing that um, ancient prophets and the contemporary uh, intelligence community both uh, share in common is is that, is that one of their roles, uh, one of their tasks was uh, foreseeing the, the future or predicting the future. In the intelligence community, policymakers will often ask their analysts to answer questions like, is such and such an event going to happen in such a in a certain country, and if so, when is it going to happen? And there's a little tension because, from the side of the analyst, it's not always possible to to make predictions with that kind of specificity. That uh, it's possible to know it's likely that uh, such and such will happen in a certain place or general area within a certain you know time frame, but. Um, but not necessarily to know the future with that level of, uh, you know, prophetic ability to say, uh, of, you know, almost like uh, knowing something like on this exact date that a group of terrorists by this name are going to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and uh, uh, begin initiate, you know, carrying out this plan to strike this target. Um, that's obviously not within their capacity. The real classic example for the last 20 years of what's widely called uh, an intelligence failure, you know, a failure to foresee a major uh, attack, uh, is 9-11. And there are plenty of people who will explain why it wasn't actually an intelligence failure. Um, there's there's so many articles and books written about this. Um, so... If you're interested in that subject, why couldn't, why didn't they foresee that happening? Or, you know, some people will say they actually did. They actually did know that something was going to happen within um, a certain time frame and perpetrated by a particular group and so on. But really, so much has been written about it. I'm not going to um, even try to get into that here. And it's, you know, there's a world of, uh, of books and articles about it out there. Even if you just like uh, do a search for like 9/11 intelligence failure, even better look at look at uh, Google Scholar. But as I'm you know making this episode today, it's the end of March, 2020. We're either in the middle of quarantine for coronavirus or at the beginning of the quarantine, depending on how things play out over the next few months. Um, and I thought that it's uh, there's an, that it's an interesting example. Um, I flagged this article I came across just from yesterday. Uh, it's an article on uh, businessinsider.com titled, Trump says nobody could have predicted a pandemic like coronavirus. Here are all the times he was warned about it and refused to take action. I thought it was a good example, not only because it's something we're all going through at this moment, but also because it does really seem like the kind of thing that would have been impossible to foresee. 
I mean, how could anybody have known that someone, you know, in a market in China were going to sell bats and someone was going to eat one and get this virus that would then take over the world, you know, at this uh, at this scale and uh, at this speed? How, how could anyone possibly have known that was going to happen? Well, according to this article, ex- experts were urgently and repeatedly um, warning policymakers, including the president, that something like this was going to happen. So here's a nice quote from President Trump about it on March 19th. He said, I would view it as something that just surprised the whole world. And if people would have known about it, it could have stopped, uh, stopped being in place. Nobody knew there'd be a pandemic on or, or an epidemic of this proportion. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And then uh, on March 26, he also said, nobody would have ever thought a thing like this could have happened. Now, this particular article from Business Insider, the um, incidents they cite specifically in the context of uh, Donald Trump having been warned about this were uh, a report that the Obama administration officials, you know, a briefing that they gave to the incoming uh, administration about responding to a a pandemic, which included a hypothetical scenario where an outbreak started in Asia and then spread to the United States and showed, you know, that there were some serious uh, problems with the U.S. healthcare system. And then there was also a simulation last year at the Department of Health and Human Services that simulated a scenario where there was a, a respiratory virus that spread from China to the U.S. But then the specific warnings they were referring to about Trump personally uh, being warned about the coming pandemic were um, started this year in January, where the uh, United States intelligence community started in you know, flashing red lights saying, this is definitely about to happen. Now, beyond this, there are a few uh, predictions that I've seen being mentioned in social media, um, on Reddit, for example. I think one of the most memorable and um, outstanding ones, I suppose, is that uh, Bill Gates has been warning about something like this for uh it looks like at least since 2015. He gave a, 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 two, a TED Talk in 2015 titled The Next Outbreak, We're Not Ready, where he talks about you know some of the uh, gaps in the U.S. health care system and uh, um, scenarios about what could happen with the pandemic. And he says, uh, he concludes that there's no need to panic, but we need to get going. You know, need to we need to need to be doing something about this uh, to be to be prepared. There there are other examples. Um, some of them better, some of them not as good. Especially coming from uh, uh, the scientific community, of course. Um, here's an article on Politico titled "We Predicted a Coronavirus Pandemic." Here's what policy policymakers could have seen coming. This, uh, these, this, uh, there's some, you know, keywords. This, what the policymakers could have seen coming. They're offering a counterfactual, sure, but they're saying uh, 
that it, it, this was foreseeable. We predicted it. And uh, the authors are, uh, their names are Samuel Brannon and Kathleen Hicks, but they, uh, they're both in leadership roles at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And Brannon is with the uh, Risk and Foresight Group specifically. Now, before I move on, I just want to add that um, as I'm making this episode, uh, Michael Morell, the former deputy director of the CIA, tweeted this really remarkable excerpt from the uh, National Intelligence Council report titled uh, Global Trends 2025, which was published in 2008. And this is really one of the most clearest, one of the clearest and most striking examples. So, uh, I just want to read um, a little bit from it to give an example of a study that did predict this exact event with really remarkable uh, accuracy, a full uh, 12 years ago. I believe the the section he's quoting from is uh, potential emergence of a global pandemic, and the report says. The emergence of a novel, highly transmittable, and virulent human respiratory illness for which there are no adequate countermeasures could initiate a global pandemic. If a pandemic disease emerges by 2025, internal and cross-border tension and conflict will become more likely as nations struggle with degraded capabilities to control the movement of populations seeking to avoid infection or maintain access to resources. The emergence of a pandemic disease depends upon the natural genetic mutation or reassortment of currently circulating disease strains or the emergence of a new pathogen into the human population. Experts consider highly pathogenic avian influenza strains, such as H5N1, to be likely candidates for such a transformation, but other pathogens, such as the SARS coronavirus or other influenza strains, also have this potential. If a pandemic disease emerges, it probably will first occur in an area marked by high population density and close association between humans and animals, such as many areas of China and Southeast Asia, where human populations live in close proximity to livestock. Under such a scenario, inadequate health monitoring capability within the nation of origin probably would prevent early identification of the disease. Weeks might pass before definitive laboratory results could be obtained confirming the the existence of a disease with pandemic potential. In the interim, clusters of the disease would begin to appear in towns and cities within Southeast Asia. Despite limits imposed on international travel, travelers with mild symptoms or who were asymptomatic could carry the disease to to other continents. Waves of new cases would occur every every few few months. The absence of an effective vaccine and near-universal lack of immunity would render populations vulnerable to to infection. In this worst case, tens to hundreds of millions of Americans within the U.S. homeland would become ill and deaths would mount into the tens of millions. Outside the U.S., Critical infrastructure degradation and economic loss on a global scale would result as approximately a third of the worldwide population became ill and hundreds of millions died. Now, as far as I've uh, heard, nobody's predicting numbers quite this dire of tens to hundreds of millions of Americans dying. But other than those numbers, which God willing are... um, much higher than anything we'll experience 
it's really stunning um, how precise that uh, prediction was. And of course it was impossible for them to say it's going to happen in on this date or even like in the fall of 2019 in China. They did a really good job of hitting all the major details of what's happening. So to begin to sort of segue back to the subject of uh, prophecy, I find this world of scientific forecasting super interesting. I'm starting to build a small library here of books on the subject of, of forecasting, and I'm super interested in um, predictive analytics. But I guess what I'm interested in kind of opening up today is um, the question of how this um, these kinds of practices have taken over, uh, to some degree, the tasks of prophecy. And it, obviously, I think, um, certainly the prophetic experience of predicting disaster and having no one listen to you. I do feel personally that there is something more to prophecy than just predictive analytics or scientific forecasting. But that being said, there's a lot of significant and super interesting overlap there. And so this this has kind of been on my mind for a little while. And any of you who may be regular listeners will remember that uh, I recently had an episode about knowledge in the Hebrew Bible um, and and just certain themes in um, especially in the book of Jonah and the book of Job I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little bit more into this in a moment but um, there's this theme of knowledge connected with prophecy and as I've been continuing to think about it, I've really been noticing how much that knowledge is about knowledge of the future. I really don't know how interested um, my listeners are in general with the Hebrew Bible, if they share quite as much enthusiasm as I do. I, I want to share with, with you a short, a really brief anecdote, something one of uh, my teachers a, a rabbi at Harvard, Chabad, and uh, MIT. Something he said to me, he was, uh, uh, you know, kind of mentoring me on a project. And we were talking about the Talmud. <sighs> and I was talking about the oxen. Everybody I know, the first thing, you know, when they first start learning Talmud, they start with the oxen. There are these long, elaborate rules about, uh, you know, ancient Jewish religious laws about oxen and uh, they're so they're 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 so detailed and so vast that um, I don't know I guess it, it's a huge barrier to uh, engagement intellectually and emotionally with the text because uh, I mean who cares about ancient laws about oxen and uh, so this rabbi told me something at the time. I don't remember. It didn't make a, a profound. It didn't. It didn't make an impression on me as being particularly found. But then later, 
it really I really did find it a lot more mind blowing that uh, he said you know it's not about the oxen and that's the ta- that's what the ta- studying Talmud is about it's not about um, you know this ancient law or that ancient law it's about the 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 logic that goes into uh, the discussion of those laws you know it actually rewires your brain and then those same ideas that same logic you bring away and can apply to other situations in your life in the world more generally and like I said I didn't see it as a particularly found particularly profound idea at the moment but when I did start to perceive um, this layer that I had never seen before of espionage and intelligence work in the Hebrew Bible my mind really was a lot more blown by this idea that like yes we're talking about you know a miracle at the ocean or an ancient Persian king who almost killed all of his Jews but it's not about ancient Persia and it's not about the ocean we can be having a lot of different conversations at the same time without speaking about them directly depending on who's talking who's listening and what kind of understanding you know you share between the two of you so I hope that how that might help the more uh, reluctant listeners to take a little bit more interest certainly it helps uh, generate enthusiasm for biblical stories if you you know have this idea in your head that they were written by God but I think they can also be uh, appreciated for their exquisite complexity and for the analytical powers that they develop in uh, the audience who is uh, engaged with them and making an effort to uh, understand. And one of the things I love about the biblical text is that there are always surprises waiting around the next corner that you could never possibly foresee. On that note of uh, what it is or isn't possible to foresee around the next corner, um, I'll dive in first with my favorite one of my all-time favorite stories, I keep coming back to the Garden of Eden. So obviously the story is about knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. It's also about choosing your advisors wisely. The word for tree in Hebrew is eitz. And uh, the word for advice in Hebrew is eitzah. So there's this subtle implication that um, that there's a there's some connection between the tree or trees, the tree of good and evil, the tree of life that are in this garden, and uh, the advice that the um, inhabitants receive. And so if you think about that for a moment, they actually receive uh, advice from two sources, specifically about the tree in the middle of the garden. Um, God says, if you eat of that tree, uh, he says, on the day you eat of the tree, you will die. So he's offering, I don't know if you would necessarily call it a prophecy. Uh, It's a 
prediction. It's a, a knowledge about the future. If you do X, the result will be Y, death, in the future. And then um, the serpent, who is the craftiest, perhaps the wisest of all of the creatures that God had created, um, indicating that he is in possession of some kind of um, secret knowledge, perhaps uh, magic, power, knowledge of the unseen, um, but also knowledge of dark arts like uh, deception, misdirection, subterfuge. Am I saying that right? Subterfuge. Subterfuge. So he offers them advice also. You won't die, he says, but God knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like gods. You'll become like like God, knowing good and evil. So he is suggesting that God is the one who has this uh, hidden information, this uh, um, sort of black art of hiding his true intentions uh, for self-serving purposes, for seeking his own best personal best advantage. And he's also making a prediction about the future, perhaps even offering counsel. Maybe that's a bit much, but saying, if you make this choice to do what God said not to do, the outcome won't be death. The outcome will be becoming divine, becoming like God, knowing good and evil. So I can talk about the Garden of Eden all day. Um, I just wanted to point out again this uh, this short little story right at the beginning is like this uh, you know seed that has seems to have everything in it, um, including this theme of knowledge and uh, uh, specifically knowledge of the future. Uh, if we jump ahead then to um, to Jonah, as I went into uh, quite some detail about you know this this word of God comes to Jonah and tells him, "Go to the city of Nineveh and warn them that I'm going to destroy them because the uh, the injustice has taken up over the city." Uh, to such a degree that I can't tolerate it anymore. And instead of doing um, what God has, you know, ordered him to do, the prophet, uh, we can say he does the opposite. He turns and runs the other direction. Again, if you go back, I already uh, there's already a, a pretty in-depth discussion of this story, which I love. But one of the main points of it is that uh, we don't find out until the end of the book why Jonah ran. And when he reveals it, he's, uh, you know, I get the sense kind of arguing with God over over it. And he's saying um, that he didn't want to go warn them because he says, I know 
that you are a merciful God and you will um, forgive them. You know, if, if I go and warn them, they're going to repent and change and be saved. And I don't want that to happen. He wanted God to punish them. He wanted God to destroy the city because he was angry. And this is this is this is also important. I think that that um, that anger. I'm really going to dig into this shortly with uh, Josephus and the destruction of Jerusalem. But Jonah's angry. I, as I understand it, angry at the city of Nineveh. This this sinful people, and he wants the sinful people to be punished. He doesn't want them to be forgiven. So the knowledge he has about the future is, you know, he says, I know that if I do this thing God told me to do, if I go to the city and warn them that they're going to be destroyed because of this, uh, what's going to happen is um, they're going to repent and they're going to be forgiven. And he didn't want that to happen. And in the end, it is what happens. There's this... uh, uh, I don't know if you would call it an irony, but there maybe maybe it's more of a poetic justice thing, where the punishment he wanted to happen to the city of Nineveh is what happens to him. Like they're the ones who are he wants to die. He wants them to die, but instead, what happens is he's the one who descends down into the pit of hell, uh, into death, into Sheol, into the body of uh, the monster in the ocean. Um, by, I suppose, taking advice, taking a counsel, taking um, direction from his anger, taking his anger as a guide, um, following his anger, following the guidance of his anger, takes him down into death, which is what uh, he was wishing in his anger on... uh, I guess what you might call his enemies. I don't think they were really enemies, but uh, these people he hated. The punishment he wished God to give them actually kind of um, reflected back and came to be what what actually ended up happening to him. And he's the one who has to uh, make repentance for his anger and be saved. And then when he does that and he accepts God's order, you know, then he goes and uh, warns the people and they make repentance and um, they're also saved. So there's this uh, continuation of that theme of uh, both of knowledge of good and evil, but also predictions about the future. And yes, to a degree, prophecy especially in that final moment where Jonah goes to the city. That is what ancient prophets did. They wandered through the streets of the city. I imagine them ringing a bell for some reason. I guess that's because I'm thinking of uh, the town crier, especially uh, there's a Simpsons episode where Homer becomes the town crier or wants to. Um, yeah, but but so the the, the prophets wander through the streets of a city saying, whoa, whoa, on the city, terrible things are going to happen if you don't mend your ways. Making those predictions of doom for which uh, prophets are uh, 
best known. Now with Job, my initial instinct is to say it's not quite to the same degree about knowledge of the future, although there's a case that can be made for it. But really what's happening to Job is that all of the horrible things have already happened to him once the, you know, main part of the story gets going. There's there's kind of a brief setup in the beginning where a series of tragedies come to him and we as an audience get to see the secret hidden world where um, there's this divine court where uh, Satan is a sort of uh, intelligence officer, um, more like secret police, I think. Secret police, uh, he's kind of the head of the secret police in God's court, and um, God is bragging about how great Job is, and uh, Satan is saying, Satan meaning the adversary, the adversary is saying, um, you know, he's not so pious, he only praises you because uh, you give him everything take away all of his blessings and he'll curse you. And pretty much looks like he's right. You know, that's that's what happens and it's certainly understandable. You know, all of God, all, all of uh, Job's sons get killed. His, uh, all, you know, all of, he loses all of his wealth, everything uh, he cares about, you know, is just uh, um, decimated. And so I think pretty understandably he uh, is overwhelmed with grief. And then when God, you know, makes his uh, theatrical, I think it's called a, a theophany, his theatrical appearance near the end of the book, what he has to say to Job, he he doesn't defend himself, as as I went into more detail in the pre in that previous episode. I keep referring to, uh, it's a sort of courtroom scenario where, for at first Job is on trial, and then it flips so that God's on trial. And when God makes his appearance in this cosmic court where uh, Job is the adversary, where Job is the prosecuting attorney, um, God does not mount any defense. But rather what he says is like, Job, who do you think you are? You you don't know. Like, there's so much you don't know. Your knowledge is so small um, compared to mine. You know, I I was there at the beginning of the creation of time. And it's never, it's never stated explicitly, but I do think it is implicit that um, there's an element of like, not only do you not know why, this is really happening to you, but you also don't know what's coming in the future. You think that this horrific tragedy is the end of the story, but it's not. You're freaking out because you think, you know, this moment you're having at the bottom of the ocean, in the lowermost level of hell, you think that's how your story ends, but you don't know what's coming in the future. You don't know the future. So once again, we're seeing these themes of knowledge, lack of knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of the future. 
and knowledge of the unseen. I think the book of Job is one of the first places, certainly that I am aware of at the moment, where um, we're kind of shown the existence of a world that exists behind a sort of veil or curtain, you know, in the uh, celestial world where things happen outside of human perception that affect the world in our personal um, lives and experiences, or even kind of hints of the existence of an unseen world. So I guess then the last example that I want to bring in today about ancient prophecy is uh, from Josephus. Some of you may know, but for those of you who don't, Josephus was a ancient historian. He lived in the first century of the Common Era. Um, I guess what they used to call the first hundred years uh, AD. We now say, you know, the first century CE Common Era. Um, so he lived during the time of the Roman destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And he was an aristocrat, and uh, he survived the experience, moved to Rome, you know, lived in Rome, and uh, wrote an extensive history of um, ancient Judea, which includes a, an account of this, the destruction of uh, the Jewish temple in 70 CE, which is the uh, destruction for Christians, which uh, Jesus had uh, um, foretold in uh, the Gospels. And so I was recently writing an essay about ancient historians and their uh, accounts of massive catastrophes in the ancient world. I looked at um, a fire that destroyed most of Rome in the um, in the year 64 CE. I was going to uh, look at a, another fire which destroyed the Temple of Peace in Rome, which is where, like, you know, the, the Roman soldiers destroyed the Jewish temple, sacked Jerusalem, and they took the treasures from the Jewish temple to Rome and um, deposited them in this temple called the the Temple of Peace, which they built specifically for the purpose, I believe. Um, and then that Temple of Peace was later destroyed by fire. Uh, I don't know. I think it was maybe another hundred years later. But um, but uh, along the way, I was reading this in uh, Josephus wrote his uh, history of, uh, it's called The Jewish Wars, is how it's translated. Um, and it was written in Greek. And so for my writing samples, I was working with it in the original Greek and translating certain passages. And so I ended up, you know, reading these passages very, very closely. And this left me with the impression that Josephus actually had a very profound understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and, um, and, and consequently there are some extremely subtle, I don't know if you want to call it undertones or insinuations, hints, um, implications, you know, if you read between the lines, um, the way he p depicts the destruction of the Jewish temple is done in a way that is uh, not only, 
you know, in agreement with, in affinity with uh, the the patterns of the destructions of uh, cities, such as the destruction of uh, Nineveh in the book of uh, in the book of uh, uh, Jonah, or the uh, threatened destruction of Nineveh, and other similar stories of uh, uh, world destruction during the flood or destructions of other cities, such as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. His account is not only, you know, modeled on those uh, biblical patterns, but also shows, I think, a very profound understanding of those biblical stories. So the story that um, Josephus tells about the destruction of Jerusalem and the uh, temple in Jerusalem, it starts off with... um, a series of omens. So there are uh, experts in the city who are specially trained to interpret omens. They're priests and other people uh, who have expert knowledge in how to uh, interpret signs from God. And um, there are a series of uh, omens in, I don't know, maybe the year or so before the destruction of the city. Um, it starts with a series of celestial events. There's a star that appears in the sky that looks like a sword. Uh, there's a comet that appears in the sky. And then um, one day there's an unusual light that appears in the temple. And at this point, um, the experts, in- interpreters of omens, they're saying, these are bad signs. Um, these are warnings. Uh, the one that I remember most clearly is uh, uh, there's uh, the, the one about the door. The, the, there was one day that the, the door to the temple was particularly, strangely uh, difficult to close. And um, and so the common people who are, who are untrained in the interpretation of omens, they interpret it in a way that's kind of, I don't know, self-flattering. They say, oh, this sign, the, the, the door to the temple couldn't close, it means... Um, it means God is opening the gates of good fortune to us. But the experts are saying, uh, no, this means that the security of the temple is compromised. And the gate is open as a gift to our enemies to just come in and take whatever they want. And this, you know, this is a warning that something really serious and bad is coming. And after a long series of these kinds of omens, um, I think one of the final ones is uh, a prophet who appears in the cities of Jerusalem. I, uh, his name is Joseph ben Ananias. And he he roams through the city crying, A voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and its temple, a voice against brides and bridegrooms, a voice against the entire people. Um, but the people kind of, you know, they, they blow him off as just like some crazy guy. And so Josephus, looking back retrospectively, says um, these signs clearly foretold the coming disaster, but the people disregarded them. I think it's important to note that there's a sort of break in the system of communication between God and the people. Josephus doesn't present this um, understanding of religion where everyone is equally capable of 
of uh, receiving divine communications and understanding them. As he portrays it, there's, you know, this system of experts. God speaks, and the people who are specially trained to understand the language that God uh, uses to speak to them um, are the ones who have the capacity to interpret the signs correctly. And um, the people should be listening to their experts. But what the experts are saying is inconvenient and maybe a little scary. So rather than um, going through the difficult work of making necessary changes to sort of change paths and avoid this destruction, which, uh, you know, in the biblical stories of the d destruction, God is always destroying um, cities or, or the entire world in one instance um, in response to the injustice of the people. So the implication is that, you know, the people of Jerusalem would have to turn back towards uh, justice and um, justice in the sense of um, correct behavior but they disregard the advice of their um, priests and prophets and uh, interpreters of signs and um, accept or make up for themselves even um, interpretations that make them feel good like oh yeah this this means that God you know approves of everything that's going on and things are going to be great and we don't have to do anything different just keep on trucking so Judea at this point is a Roman prefecture um, they're you know basically living under Roman administration and you know the event that precipitates the destruction of the city is that the the uh, people of Jerusalem rise up in rebellion against Rome and uh, the Romans send their armies to uh, quash the rebellion, to suppress it, and um, and so one thing that's pretty notable about the story that Josephus tells about that event is that um, he tells the story in a way that you know the destruction of the city actually isn't the fault of the Roman army that comes, you know, and uh, suppresses the rebellion, but he attributes the uh, cause of the uh, destruction ultimately to God, but uh, God in, in response to the uh, uh, injustice of the people of Jerusalem, the wrongdoings. And Josephus, Josephus even goes so far as to portray uh, the leader uh, of, the, of the Roman army, Titus, um, portrays Titus as actually trying to prevent the, the temple from being destroyed. Titus comes, he sees, you know, oh, this temple's so beautiful. It's such a, uh, um, you know, exquisite monument to God. Let's not destroy it. But, um, but God has other plans. And so I'm going to read one key paragraph. This is my translation. There's a few um, key phrases here that um, have been debated for centuries how to uh, translate and understand them. And I I really spent more time than uh, I thought I was going to have to when I was translating this, really digging into uh, some of that literature. And I think 
I have a strong argument for why I believe this is the right translation. But um, th there, there, there are some uh, details about this that I, that I want you um, draw draw your attention to. So uh, I'm just going to read this one key paragraph. Josephus writes, um, God had long before condemned it, condemned the temple to the fire, and the day was on hand, predestined by the cycle of time, uh, the tenth of Luz, which is uh, the tenth, uh, which is Tishbeav, on which it had previously been burned by the king of Babylon. But the flames took their beginning and cause from its own people, the, from the city's own people. For after Titus withdrew a little, the rebels, the Jewish rebels, having rested, again attacked the Romans, and a clash occurred between the guards of the temple and those intending to extinguish the fire in the inner courtyard, who, having routed the Jews, followed them as far as the temple. Then one of the soldiers, neither waiting for a command, nor feeling fear on account of so grave an act, inspired by some divine impulse, seized some material uh, from the burning flame, and being lifted up by a fellow soldier, he cast it into a golden window through which there was an entry into the rooms around the temple from the northern direction. So the big debate has been over where um, Josephus is suggesting the fire first came from. And so I, I said the flames took their beginning and cause from its own people. Um, the word that I translate as cause also implies blame. So the beginning of the fire, but also the cause of it in the sense of like, who's at fault, who who's to blame for the fire in the temple is the people of Jerusalem, the Jews. And yet he also portrays a Roman soldier as being possessed by this uh, divine impulse. And there are some key words here uh, when the soldier takes the flames. The word Josephus used uses to describe the taking of the flames by the Roman soldier. Uh, it's also a word in Greek which you would use to describe someone being seized by an emotion, uh, especially anger, being seized by anger. The soldier Josephus says that he's inspired by a divine impulse. And the word you know I translate as impulse it's a word that kind of indicates a violent or extreme emotion or feeling. Um, but the word is also used to describe the way that a fire like rages, the raging of a fire. It's the same word, um, impulse or, or the rage of the fire. So, so there's like a, uh, starting to be some hints here that the soldier taking up this fire, is a sense in a, he's both in a sense being possessed by the spirit of god but also specifically 
being seized by divine anger. So there are extremely subtle hints in the language of this passage where Josephus is insinuating that uh, that moment where the uh, temple was set on fire by a Roman soldier, it was both caused by the uh, culpability, blameworthiness of the uh, citizens of Jerusalem, but um, the act itself represented God's divine anger coming to the temple of Jerusalem in the form of fire. A divine anger which takes possession of the soldier, inspiring him to pick up fire and throw it into the window, starting the fire that burned down the temple. The God's divine anger at Jerusalem is moving through the soldier um, and ultimately reaching the physical structure of the building in the form of fire, which is a common way for God to destroy cities in the Hebrew Bible, but also, you know, with fire, but also, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, like, in general, in the ancient world, fire is probably one of the most uh, destructive um, forces of nature capable of, uh, you know, doing extensive or even total damage to a city, especially one, you know, made primarily of wooden structures, as was certainly the case with uh, the fire in Rome that happened within, you know, 10 or 20 years of this uh, uh, destruction of Jerusalem. But the point I really want to, the point I'd like to really uh, uh, focus on, you know, this episode is about forecasting and prophecy. And um, something really struck me, you know, in the way that Josephus portrayed the warnings that came to the city and the way that people reacted to them. Um, there was one additional detail that I haven't mentioned yet that um, Josephus also suggests that that there were, let's say, business leaders in Jerusalem who wanted the status quo to stay the same. So they hired a false prophet to go to the city while all of this chaos is raining down on the city and mislead the people intentionally. They wanted the status quo to stay the same because they were making a lot of money on things being the way they were and they wanted things to stay the way they were because that's where their profits were coming from. So they intentionally hired a false prophet to go out and spread misinformation in those final moments in order to prevent the people from listening to the real experts. And I don't know if you have a sense yet of where I'm going with this, but I was I was really, you know, powerfully struck by how similar that is to our current situation 
maybe even the situation in the uh, 80s and 90s is more accurate with uh, global warming, where we even at this point know the names of the specific advertising agencies that uh, business leaders such as Exxon hired. Uh, I'm pretty sure Exxon hired the same PR firm that had um, been in charge of persuading Americans that uh, it was healthy to smoke cigarettes and that, you know, even doctors love smoking, you know, whatever brand. Um, they hired the same PR firm to create this um, counter-narrative to global warming, suggesting that um, it's a hoax, that these are just normal Earth changes that happen, you know, every few millennia or something, and that carbon emissions are not the cause of global warming. And we were in a similar situation, I guess, in the 1980s and 90s, where there was a window of opportunity where we could have changed paths, and probably would have if it hadn't been for the efforts of those companies to um, create a fake controversy. And I think at this point, everyone is is pretty much aware that global warming is real and it's happening and we've already started ex experiencing some of the life-threatening consequences uh, such as the uh, um, you know melting of the ice caps and, uh, and glaciers and rising of sea levels and these storms that are just you know decimating um, coastal areas periodically uh, displacing indigenous people who live on islands. Uh, this, a lot of this has already happened. And in America, I guess, I, uh, that people have just accepted that we're not going to do anything about it. And we keep pretending like um, we're going to be able to continue with life as usual. We keep making five-year plans and ten-year plans plans for retirement like we're not staring down the barrel of a gun that's about to go off but I guess the reason that I wanted to bring this story into uh, this episode is um, because of the really unexpected juxtaposition of present-day scientists with the ancient prophets In Josephus' account of the destruction of Jerusalem, he's saying those people should have listened to the experts. The experts knew what they were talking about, and they were warning them. But the warnings were inconvenient and scary, and it was just easier to believe that it wasn't true or to make up some alternate explanation or interpretation um, and just keep on living life as usual. I don't think that it's at all controversial to suggest that scientific forecasting has uh, taken up, you know, the role of interpreting the signs and omens that appear to give warning of coming disaster the same way that 
alchemy became modern chemistry, exorcism became psychiatry. You know, I don't think scientists would disagree, or it, I don't think it would be even remotely controversial to suggest that um, the ancient art of reading and interpreting omens, you know, developed in modern times into, you know, scientific forecasting. It is in its own way a, a science of reading the signs. You could even metaphorically call it, you know, uh, reading the signs in the sky. So I don't think that that's a particularly controversial suggestion. I think, if anything, what would be unusual in the reading I'm offering here is the suggestion that religious people should be the ones even more enthusiastically committed to uh, listening to the advice of experts and following through on doing what's right. I suppose by way of conclusion, I'll come back to another one of my favorite biblical stories, um, which is the book of Esther, which is among other things about a about life under incompetent and potentially genocidal leadership. And Esther shares in common with uh, the uh, story of the destruction of the uh, temple in Jerusalem in Josephus. Uh, as I was reading it in a previous episode, it shares in common uh, this idea of God, God's presence in the world working through human beings. But I suppose, you know, Esther, the book of Esther, but also the holiday of Purim, which, with which it's associated, um, are both really about this uh, crazy world turned upside down where the, you know, least competent are the ones who seem to hold everybody's uh, fate in their hands. And in the book of Esther, you know, as I've talked about before, the rabbis kind of challenge us that no one really prays to God. God isn't really mentioned in this book, and that's very unusual for, uh, uh, you know, biblical texts. And so the rabbis tell us that it's a challenge that you're supposed to look for God and uh, uh, try to understand where God is in the story where he seems, you know, to be almost criminally negligent in allowing these incompetent buffoons to uh, be in positions of power. Buffoons, you know, who have their strings pulled by people who are genuinely evil. And I suppose one of the lessons is that God can be found even in the darkest and most unlikely places, if you look for her. But also that God's presence manifests in the world through the people who try to do what's right, which is a large part of Esther's story, you know, is her uh, making the choice um, to do what's right, especially when it would be easy for her not to just to go with the flow and kind of blend into the crowd and say, you know, I wasn't responsible. She also is in a unique position in the story where she does have access 
to um, the highest levels of power within the terrestrial government, unlike you and me. So I, I don't think that the, that the story is, is trying to tell us that we all have the responsibility to solve all of this world's problems if the power isn't given to us, but we are responsible for doing what's right and making those choices and decisions within the circle of what is within our power to choose. And then also, I suppose, to distill some sort of conclusion from the comparison of the uh, various stories, especially the Garden of Eden and um, the destruction of Jerusalem and Josephus. In some ways, those stories really are about learning to admit when you don't know something and take good advice from experts. Maybe even to be suspicious of conspiracy theories. But, you know, also, I don't know, I suppose the Eden story gets a little complicated because uh, I think uh, many of the rabbis are in agreement that, you know, the way things happened was really... It's not necessarily that things could have happened differently. So I suppose for us now in this particular moment, the challenge, certainly for myself, the challenge is really to trust that God is present in this moment in history. And the ultimate control really is in the hands of someone we can trust. For the people who do believe, you know, the experts in this era of climate disaster, I feel like it's really hard not to despair and to feel like we're just completely screwed. And all I can suggest in the end is really just to continue to decide every day to do the right thing, even and especially when it's not easy, and then um, beyond that, to keep the faith.